Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. Today, we'll learn about people who are digging beneath the surface, telling authentic stories about life here in Appalachia, including a woman who's helping write a new TV show about the opioid crisis. Her Hope Haven is similar to what I have experienced in my recovery. I don't care to tell my story. I don't care if it's out there. I think that helps people. And a community theater company in Harlan County, Kentucky, that produced a play featuring characters who confront the things that divide us. Like a man who took part in the siege on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And a black woman who says she feels afraid for her life because of racism. We'll also hear how an increase in gun violence is affecting children in West Virginia's capital city. There are kids that come into therapy and you say, so tell me some good things that are going on. And the child looks at you and say, we didn't hear any gunshots last night. Those stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. If I asked you to recall a book or a movie that depicts the true experience of life here in Appalachia, what comes to mind? There are plenty of great writers and storytellers here, but they don't often get the attention they deserve. Why do you think that is? Well, today we're highlighting projects that go beyond stereotypes. Stories that dig deep to show a more authentically human portrait of what life is really like here. We start with a TV show. Well, it's actually a pilot, which means it may become a TV series. The show is called Her Hope Haven. It explores the opioid crisis from the point of view of people who are inside the recovery process. Her Hope Haven is a new project from West Virginia filmmaker Tija Bumgardner. It's a fictional series, but the stories are based on the real-life experiences of those who've come through the process themselves. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's health reporter June Leffler went to the set and has this story. Her Hope Haven, scene 1A, take 3. The fictional series is set at a recovery home for women with substance use disorder called Her Hope Haven. In this scene, we witness the success of those who have entered and completed the program. These women who are sitting behind me have proved over and over again, we do recover. I give to you the 2021 class of Her Hope Haven. But this pilot episode focuses on those just getting started on their recovery journey. Ashley Ellis is a creative consultant on the project. So it's based on the treatment centers I've been in, and Her Hope Haven is similar to what I have experienced in my recovery. Ellis doesn't have acting, screenwriting, or video experience, but she makes up for it in her lived experience and her willingness to share painful truths with an audience of strangers. I don't care to tell my story. I don't care if it's out there. I think that helps people. Years ago, Ellis met filmmaker Tija Bumgardner, who began making a documentary about her recovery process. Opioid use isn't a new subject for the Marshall University film professor. She's dealt with it personally through her father, who died from an overdose last year. But it is the first time she's tackled the issue from a fictional standpoint. Because there's only so much you can do with the documentary. There's something about fiction that can almost get to this other form of truth because you can actually like build this world. She builds that world from the stories of Ellis and other women on the set. All the characters in recovery are played by women who have lived through it themselves. There's a script, but actors are encouraged to make their lines their own. Even now, like a story is written. But with the women who've had these experiences, we go into it, and I'm like, change it. The cast is made up of amateur actors who are encouraged to give input on phrasing and costumes based on what feels most natural and believable. Cast member Lauren Brothers went through the same experiences as her character, Rachel. She is a young girl, and she just had a baby, and she needs to be a better mom. So she's setting back out to, you know, get treatment. Brothers spent a year at a recovery center similar to the one in the film. You know, you get to see how hard it is, that struggle of going and getting help, but also how bad you want it down the side. It's like you are in a war in between yourself. 
In this scene, Rachel and her mother, Lisa, are daunted to find out how long the recovery program will take. Well, I won't go into all the details right now, but I do want to check in to make sure that you're willing to commit the 9 to 12 months that you're going to be here. 9 to 12 months? Yes. We thought it was 3 months. No, 9 months minimum. In the next scene, they discuss Rachel's toddler, Pearl. I can't be away from Pearl this long. Right? You have to. Brothers isn't a professional actor, but she brings her own process to these emotional scenes. I could picture my baby saying goodbye, so that's how I could relate to that and get, you know, involved in that scene to make it look real. Rachel's internal war with herself over whether she can stay in treatment plays out over the course of the episode, which will air for a Charleston audience this fall. For Appalachia Health News, I'm June Leffler. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. So I think Tija and her teammates' efforts could really impact how future stories about our region are told. I mean, just imagine if her Hope Haven is made into a full TV series. I think it'd be huge. We'll keep you all updated on what happens. But in the meantime, you can find out more at our website, wvpublic.org. Next, we go to Harlan County, Kentucky. A local theater company called Higher Ground decided to make a play about 2020. For the cast, that meant coming to terms with a difficult year. From COVID-19 to police violence and far-right extremism. When the ensemble decided to cover the summer's Black Lives Matter protests, lots of feelings came up. Katie Myers spoke with cast members and creators on how they reckoned with race, religion, and community through art. Just a little more than one year ago, the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor sparked months of public outcry. People took to the streets, even in small towns in Kentucky, like Harlan. We protested in Harlan to show that allies exist in these mountains, that our friends are tired and worried that they might be next. This isn't the protest. It's a play created by Harlan County community members through a theater company called Higher Ground. Every year, Higher Ground co-creates a production with its ensemble. This year, the play was called Shift Change. Director Keith McGill said the intention was to allow cast members to process the year's events. And this year was, we need to talk about COVID, we need to talk about how politics is sort of putting a space in between people, we need to talk about uh, racism and Black Lives Matter and all these important issues. To McGill, who is Black, rehearsal was a space to work out misunderstandings. We brought in uh, the African-American cast members and said, how are you feeling about what's happening? We brought in the white cast members and they said, I don't know what to do. And we talked about it. Cast member Kira Higgins, for instance, was deeply affected by the death of George Floyd. Higgins played Myra, a character much like Kira herself, a young black woman who's hungry for justice. Moments in the play come from Higgins' own experience after she heard about Floyd's death. Yeah, a little bit after that, I just remember sitting in the living room. I was by myself, and I just had a feeling to get on my hands and knees, and I started praying, and the whole prayer was about, God, in this world where I know that you love me, I don't feel loved. Where I know I'm a being worthy of love, I feel so scared. The ensemble wanted to reflect the full spectrum of Harlan politics, so they didn't shy away from the hard stuff. Some cast members' relatives went to the Capitol during January's far-right insurrection. In the play, a character named Hank did the same. This is Hank and Mona, his black neighbor. I guess there's a lot of hate on both sides. Hank, I'm just going to say this. There's some good in you. Mona acts nice about it, but afterwards... Hmm. To hell with that man whispering in my ear like he understands where I'm coming from. Some white cast members, according to black cast members, had trouble with that part. They couldn't believe that Mona wouldn't tell Hank the truth. But, Higgins says, it made everyone aware of how unsafe many black folks felt in the community during that time and still feel. 
For shift change, this was the work. To reach out and be brave and try to understand. There has to be a shift. Lord, please let there be a shift. I believe I might be ready for a shift. That's what the cast agreed on. A relentless yearning to come into relationship with one another. Even if they're not there quite yet. A video release of Shift Change is scheduled for the late summer. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers. Katie originally reported that story for the Ohio Valley Resource Series, Black Lives in Red States. The resource is a journalism collaborative made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and West Virginia Public Broadcasting. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of books out there trying to describe and explain the intricacies of Appalachia. Sometimes the authors get it right, but other times the books spark major controversy. Think hillbilly elegy. Well, there's another new book, but stick with me here. It offers an insightful, facts-based look at Eastern Kentucky. It looks at how past and current events might play into the future of the region. The book is called Twilight and Hazard and Appalachian Reckoning, written by Alan Maiman. Maiman is an award-winning journalist who lived in and reported on Eastern Kentucky in the early 2000s. I asked him to come on the show to talk about the book. Can you actually just dive into telling us a little bit more about how you ended up in Eastern Kentucky? Um, I think the story you shared in the book was so compelling. Um, you had been spending time in Berlin as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times, and you didn't want to come back to the East Coast, which was kind of your home. You wanted to go somewhere foreign to you in the U.S. And what really jumped out to me, you interviewed in Kentucky for the newspaper there, and the editor said, quote, most people in Louisville have never been to Eastern Kentucky and have no idea what's happening there. We would want you to cover the area like a foreign correspondent would. Yeah, those words resonated with me, too, at the time and now 20 years onward, uh, just as much. Um, as, you, as you stated, I was living in uh, Berlin, Germany and, and working as a news assistant in the New York Times' Berlin Bureau. And I thought, you know what, maybe I would experience less of this culture shock that expats talk about if I went to a place where I had absolutely no connections to, no familiarity with at all. And just as good fortune would have it, around the time I was formulating this idea, I saw a job opening in the Hazard Bureau of the Louisville Courier-Journal. And it just seemed like a, a perfect fit for me where I could go to a place that would, as a journalist, challenge me just as much as my work in, in Germany had. So um, I moved from Berlin, Germany to Hazard, Kentucky, which, uh, you know, who, who hasn't made that move before, right? <laughs> and tell us a little bit about your career trajectory there and how long you were there and some of your reporting, which was nominated for some very huge awards, and then kind of what led you to writing this book. Well, the Eastern Kentucky Bureau of the Courier-Journal is some, something of a fabled bureau. So many great reporters had passed through that bureau and done some wonderful work, especially with regards to the coal industry. So when I took the job, I knew that coal mining was going to be a, a large part of, of the beat. Um, what I didn't realize, as I was literally still unpacking my bags in 2001, was that a, a massive opioid epidemic was going to sweep over the region and the impact that that would have on, on so many communities in eastern Kentucky. So this book is really a reflection on the, the five years that I spent uh, in eastern Kentucky, where the events of that time just were era-defining in many ways. And I wanted to really draw a line between the events that took place back then and where we are today, not just in the region of eastern Kentucky, but in the nation as a whole. So it was um, an incredible experience covering Eastern Kentucky for those years. The opioid epidemic was a heartbreaking story to cover. The stories of environmental degradation were equally heartbreaking. 
the political violence that stemmed from the opioid epidemic and, and, and so on. There was never a moment while I was there that I didn't feel challenged and feel really a large sense of responsibility to tell the stories of this region in the fullest possible way, keeping in mind what my, that editor had told me when I took the job, that I was a foreign correspondent and I needed to convey what was happening in, in these communities to an audience that was four hours away and just not familiar with, with the systems and structures of Eastern Kentucky. There has been a lot of books and just coverage on Appalachia recently and for forever that has been oftentimes stereotyping the region in a certain way, um, and especially most recently looking at Appalachia as like Trump country. Um, and I know that that can rub a lot of people the wrong way who actually live here and feel that they're misrepresented. Um, you make the case that your book is different and that you're taking a more nuanced look at what's going on. Can you kind of make that case for our listeners? Yeah, well, central Appalachia and, and eastern Kentucky in particular is Trump country. I th that, that is a fact. And I think what gets uh, missed and what gets uh, misstated is the why of that. The Why is it Trump country? How did this happen? What are the historical forces at play that have resulted in, in Eastern Kentucky becoming one of, if not the reddest uh, area in the country? I think that's what my book does. It, it drills deeper into some of the notions that people have, and it may in some cases debunk conventional wisdom, but in other cases, it may validate what people have thought, but present it in a way that I believe provides the why to, to certain uh, questions. And why is that important? Because really the book in, at the end of the day, I hope is forward thinking. What we're really trying to talk about now, I hope is the idea of a just transition from a coal-based economy into uh, something else. Recognition that the people of the region and not the coal in the region are the area's biggest natural resource. So we got to lay some things out on the table, maybe state some uncomfortable truths, but that's the only way we're going to have the reckoning that we need to have. Now, Alan, I believe you have a passage of your book that you wanted to share with us. I'm wondering if you might read that for us and, and set it up with some context. Sure. I'm going to read a passage about a meeting I had soon after I arrived in Hazard with uh, then-Mayor Bill Gorman, who had been uh, mayor for quite some time and was a very colorful character. And the occasion of my meeting was that I had just written one of my first stories for the Courier-Journal, and it was about Mayor Gorman's cousin Vernon, who um, he lived at one of the highest points in Hazard, was a, an eccentric fellow, at any rate, Mayor Gorman saw this article that I had quoted uh, Vernon Cooper in and, and summoned me to his office for a meeting. <clears throat> when I entered his office, Gorman, a squat, well-put-together man who spoke like he had a lungful of sausage gravy and cigar smoke, had a copy of the Courier-Journal splayed out across his desk. My cousin Vernon sure is a character, ain't he? Gorman asked me with a hearty laugh. Oh, yes, Vernon was a character, all right, but I wasn't sure I should say as much. The mayor asked me about my background and how I came to take the hazard job. I said I grew up in Philadelphia, and he told me that he had traveled nearly everywhere in the country, but had liked few places as well as Philadelphia. Prominently displayed in Gorman's office was a framed photo of him with former President Bill Clinton, who had visited Hazard a year earlier as part of a tour of impoverished America. While in Hazard, Clinton spoke of the need to defeat poverty by encouraging private investment in the distressed region. There was also a photo of Gorman with Robert F. Kennedy, who famously came to the area in 1968 for the same reason. In the 32 years between those visits, poverty appeared to be keeping the upper hand. Also in Gorman's office was a picture of the mayor with country singer Glenn Rhinestone Cowboy Campbell, who had befriended the mayor's coal operator brother, after, after performing a free concert in Hazard in the early 1980s. I had done my due diligence by reading a couple of articles about the mayor before my visit. He had his hands in every pot, banking, insurance, coal, real estate, and media. 
the last of which he took an interest in after seeing one too many negative portrayals of Eastern Kentucky in the national news. The way that legendary Charles Kuralt depicted Eastern Kentucky in the 1964 CBS special Christmas in Appalachia upset Gorman. By the time of the airing of the 1968 public television documentary Appalachia Rich Land Poor People, Gorman could no longer countenance seeing only helpless, jobless, toothless Eastern Kentuckians flashing across his screen. He wanted to help control the narrative. So in 1969, he lobbied the Federal Communications Commission to establish a network affiliate in Hazard. That station eventually became WYMT, We're Your Mountain Television, a CBS affiliate that still features local news broadcasts throughout the day. The mayor ended our meeting on a positive note, telling me to keep an eye out for what he expected would be an influx of new business to the area. He mentioned Sykes Enterprises as one of the companies that had answered Bill Clinton's call to action by setting up two technical assistance call centers in the region. Do us right, Gorman said shortly before our meeting ended. I didn't know whether to interpret it as an order or a threat. Coming from the mouth of the affable Gorman, the words didn't sound at all malevolent. And as it turned out, I would hear this phrase or some variation of it many times in the coming years from people of all walks of life. And I came to understand it not as a warning, but as a plea. Do right by us, because we have been wronged too many times before. That was journalist and author Alan Mayman speaking about his new book, Twilight and Hazard and Appalachian Reckoning. You can find it on bookshelves or wherever you buy books. When we come back, we'll hear from a film director who couldn't wait to get out of Appalachia. She eventually did return to make a film based on her hometown. The film is called Holler. You ever looked around this town? The manufacturing drying up left and right. What's going on? They closed us down. We'll hear more after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. When Nicole Regal was growing up in Appalachian, Ohio, she couldn't wait to get out. But as an adult writer and film director, the place drew her back, and she found herself reconnecting with her town and community in unexpected ways. The result is a film called Holler. Again, here's Katie Myers, who spoke with the filmmaker about leaving and returning to your small hometown. Holler is an Appalachian coming-of-age film about Ruth, who works in a scrapyard in a small, working-class town in southeast Ohio. In this scene, Ruth learns that the local factory is shutting down. You ever looked around this town? The manufacturing drying up left and right. What's going on? They closed us down. You get a front row seat to how the world works. I sat down with filmmaker Nicole Regal to talk about why this was such a meaningful story for her. I really wanted to tell a story about um, that people could relate to and and connect to, especially um, uh, people from, you know, Southeast Ohio, people from from Appalachia. Um, And it was really important to me that someone like myself be behind the camera and and tell the story. So what was it like returning there? Um, It was like no other experience I'll ever have because while I was filming and I was at work, I would run into people that I knew or that I, who I know now. And, and I remember one time we were filming in uh, the factory and I would just hear someone say, oh, hey, Nicole. And I went to high school with them. It seems like the characters must have been really personal to you. I mean, Ruth is very much rooted in, in myself and has a lot of my lived experience. Ruth is a bit of a rebel. 
getting into trouble at school and making money in all kinds of extra legal ways. Like Regal once was, Ruth is also torn between the possibilities of a college education and devotion to her family and community. Like my own story, giving herself permission to have more and to do more and not view um, leaving or any kind of success that you have or wanting more for yourself as a betrayal. But Regal also wanted to show other perspectives. Many characters, like Ruth's brother, belong where they are. Even though life is hard, they're proud of where they're from. Oh my God. What? You just got into college. I have a life here. That's some life here, huh? Regal was often told by her elders that she had to leave in order to be successful. It's kind of like the grass is greener. Everything's better. Everyone's better. And this town sucks. And there's nothing here. That's not entirely true because I had to actually go back to that town for those things to happen. So dissect that how you will. (laughs) Maybe you can go home again, Regal said. Or maybe to make good art, you kind of have to, even if it's scary. It's a place that totally inspires me today. Everything I've ever written or made, from photography to film to writing, everything I've, I've been totally inspired by Appalachia in such a, a, a beautiful way. I think that a lot of what I make is always sort of a, a poem to um, the women uh, from Appalachia. So I don't. I don't know that now as a a grown woman, I I agree with 18-year-old Nicole. (laughs) Nicole Regal wrote and directed the film Holler. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers. Katie originally reported that story for the Ohio Valley Resource. Author Bonnie Proudfoot began working on her new novel, Goshen Road, nearly 25 years ago. But she said she had to get older before she had the confidence to finish it. The story follows two teenage sisters growing up in the 60s in West Virginia. Proudfoot sat down with West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas to talk about the novel. So describe, the the name of the book is Goshen Road. Uh, Describe the book for me. Um, so it's it's what they call an, a novel in linked narratives, which means that each chapter is almost has the drama and tension of a short story, and yet the same characters circle around through all the chapters, and it progresses forward in time. And it really, at the heart of it, is the story of two women who come to terms with who they really are, and uh, they can look the world squarely in the eyes on their own terms, but. They needed to go through a lot. Uh, so what, what genre would you put this in? So there is a whole uh, – it is a novel because it has a trajectory and it goes forward in time. But there is a whole genre um, and of linked narratives. And there um, – Well, I, I'm thinking more basic. I mean would you – is this coming of age? Is this – Oh, yeah. The, good question. I, I mean, yeah, I mean that sort of genre. You could see it as – Appalachian fiction is – I think a good way to characterize it, just to start, um, and, and coming of age, and uh, uh, female-centered fiction, right? Although not all the chapters are written right. from the point of view of uh, the female characters. You know, I was intrigued um, on the the back cover, and I assume the the the. Uh, university press people wrote the the basic description that sort of thing, but the, the, I tripped over the word, and I'm sure you are, you can guess which one I'm talking about. Elegiac, yeah. Um, and I, I literally had to look it up. I, that's not a word I'm familiar with because it re, re, pertains to an elegy, right? How how does that pertain to your book? I think that it harks back to a time past, and so in. In that, this book covers a time period of uh, 1967 to 1992. Things have gotten more complicated, you know, for Appalachia. And uh, regionally, people are confronted with, I would say, even more stressful circumstances in life in, in contemporary times. 
this harks back to the past when there was still a vestige of like cultural inheritance that uh, people, you know, people did canning. They went hunting. This they they knew how to make some form of a living off of the land, and um, not everything was material. They traded for things. It's an elegy a little bit in that regard. Okay. Things have gotten harder economically speaking since that novel. I don't think you said specifically where this is set. I mean, it's fictional. I get that. I'm guessing northern West Virginia, right on the border with Pennsylvania, would be. You know, I didn't exactly want to say the county, sure. but it. Uh, you know, if you can, I lived in Wetzel County. You can make okay. any kind of assumption. I also lived in Fairmont, and um, someone asked me, "Is Fair Chance Fairmont?" And my answer is, "No, it's actually smaller." Explain to me the reference of Goshen, the land of Goshen and for Goshen Road. It's from the Old Testament, right? And if you drive up Route 79 <laughs> from Fairmont to Morgantown, halfway between Fairmont and Morgantown is the sign. It's an exit sign. It says Goshen Road. Okay. And as almost as soon as I started working as I read, I wrote more and more about these same characters, and they all lived together, and they were so tied to the place. And there's the place itself figures largely in the book, I think. It's this kind of a spiritual force, uh, not necessarily always an easy force to grapple with, but, um, you know, it is the place of their inheritance. It is the place that they have to deal with. It's it's something that everybody who loves West Virginia knows and deep down in their hearts. If the the land isn't always going to reward you in the way that you think it should possibly, you can't tame it. And it's gorgeous. There's that it, you're drawn to stay there, and it's a price you pay as well as a great blessing. Last question, but uh, what do you hope your readers take away uh, from reading the book, what 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 do you want them to to feel and think afterwards? I want them to feel like they understand folks who live in rural um, uh, sections of the country, not even only West Virginia, not only Appalachian, but possibly Appalachian. How much family means, how much the land itself means, and how much they rely on each other in ways that sustain them even if times are rough Bonnie Proudfoot's Goshen Road is now available it was long listed for the 2021 Penn Hemingway Award for the best debut novel Twenty twenty one is the deadliest year yet for gun violence in America. And we're seeing this play out in West Virginia's capital city. Recently a group gathered at a local park in downtown Charleston, West Virginia, to raise awareness about the problem. Kyle Vass was there and brought back this story. Oversized pictures of fifteen young people line the stage at the Riverfront Amphitheater in Charleston. Each of the pictures has the person's name and a date on it, the day they were killed in a shooting. We are out here for gun violence awareness prevention. Charleston City Councilwoman Deanna McKinney has hosted the event every year since 2014. That's the year she lost her own son, Tymel McKinney, to gun violence. She says it's a problem that's only gotten worse since he was killed. We're not having any discussions about it. You know, after the funeral, there's not a mention of it again. And I think that's the problem. We forget. And that's why I have pictures out here with names and the dates so we don't forget. India Frith is McKinney's niece and a volunteer for the event. Frith says she recognizes a lot of faces in the pictures in front of the stage. I lost my cousin Tamel, um, my god sister Chastanay Joseph. I lost some friends I went to school with, Trey Kwan Gibson, KJ. Um, Nathaniel Lee Spivey. So, you Frith, know, who's 20, says in her short life, she's already been to several funerals for young people who've been killed by guns in the city. Do you want to stay in West Virginia? Future-wise, no, I wouldn't. Um, just because, you know, the memories here. You know, people that I've lost. Frith says she wishes she could have had a normal childhood 
As a kid, she rarely went outside to play, and she says she always had to figure out if people would pose a risk to her before hanging out with them. I watch who's around me because, you know, like just hearing some of their stories about how some of these, you know, kids were killed. One of them, he was killed by some of his friends. I feel like I have to keep looking over my shoulder. Then, you know, I'll be like, okay, like I best, I think it's best if we not, you know, hang out. The stress of worrying about getting shot weighs heavy on a lot of young people, according to Colleen Moran. Moran is a child psychologist for Harmony Health in Charleston. For most of us, it would be a once-in-a-lifetime event. For these kids, they expect to hear it nightly. There are kids that come into therapy and you say, so tell me some good things that are going on. And the child looks at you and say, we didn't hear any gunshots last night. Moran worked on Charleston's west side as a psychologist at Mary C. Snow, a majority black elementary school. She says the fear of gun violence is especially strong there. There was one individual with whom I worked who was having a very difficult day at school that day. So they brought the child to me, come to find out that the child had been up most of the night because the house that they were staying in had been shot at for the third time. That kind of trauma is extremely difficult for children to deal with because they never feel safe in the one place that they ought to feel the safest, their home. She adds that it's not unusual for people living in constant fear of gun violence to seem emotionless or even detached when describing what they've experienced. That's self-preservation. Because if you fully felt the loss and the impact of every single victim of gun violence, you would not be able to function. As for the event, very few people turned out to remember those whose faces lined the stage. There were more pictures of victims than people in the crowd. McKinney says she's disappointed in the turnout. It's really hard, especially when the community don't participate, the community don't get involved, and it shouldn't take you to lose someone to get involved. Or when you lose someone, you're looking for all the support and all these people to rally around you. You know, we're supposed to be there for each other at all times. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Kyle Vass. know, during the past year, school looked very different. And we're now finding that a lot of kids fell behind and teachers are pretty burned out. So we wanted to hear from the teachers themselves. And who better than the West Virginia Teacher of the Year, Erin Anderson. Anderson is a fifth grade teacher at Tenerton Elementary School in Upshur County. She spoke with our education reporter, Liz McCormick. Thank you, Erin, so much for joining us. First, congratulations on being named the 2021 West Virginia Teacher of the Year. And what a year it has been. Erin, will you talk with us first about your experience this year as as a teacher and as the state's Teacher of the Year working through the coronavirus pandemic? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. You know, I really just had a piece about the school year from the get-go. I knew that eyes were on me as a finalist heading into the school year. And I knew that God was here. He was before us, with us, and it was going to be here after us. And so I just, I knew that he already knew how it was going to play out. And so there was no need for me to panic. Now that is not, that's a new characteristic that I have to sort of be waiting and sort of be patient. And so no one was going to benefit from anybody panicking. Um, so like I said, I just I just had a piece about this year, and I knew that it was going to play out the way it was supposed to play out for our, for our kids and our families. My message to teachers early on was, we're not being asked to do more, just to do it in a different way. And thinking about that, you know, every year we, we ask kids to, you know, sort of jump out of their comfort zone with learning. And so it was a way for us to kind of be on the other side and see what kids had to go through. And always one of my goals is listening to understand. And so as teacher of the year, I was trying to reach out and network with teachers, really to listen, understand what their challenges were, what some of their triumphs were, how can we create opportunities from all of this? 
Aaron, our series this summer, Closing the COVID Gap, is all about exploring how we can tackle the issues that have come up in our school systems um, as a, a direct result of the coronavirus pandemic. And I want to ask you, as a teacher and as West Virginia's Teacher of the Year, what are some of the areas that you noticed that were the most challenging and that now need the most attention, in your opinion? I'm going to say first and foremost, we have to be careful how we approach this with kids. I'm not going to use the word gap or learning loss. I just believe they have a negative connotation. When we're talking to kids, we don't really want to go there. Most of this is all still to be seen because we're going to be here. Teachers are going to work hard to see how this all plays out. Um, What I did see from my kiddos this spring was a shortened attention span. You know, the stamina, we only had about 10 to 15 minutes of of pure stamina by the time state testing came around. So that was an issue in my room. I saw kids tired. I found one of the challenges was making sure I got all the content out to my kids when we were working remotely, streamlining standards, overlapping subjects as best I could. You know, I think one of the, one of the challenges just staying away from negativity. I've talked several, several times about filling, you know, whatever you fill yourself with is what's going to pour out whenever life knocks into you. And so, like I said, just I I was at peace and I just needed to make sure that I was sharing that in a positive way and that I was staying positive. You know, there are millions of dollars that are coming into our West Virginia schools through the American Rescue Plan specifically. And a large portion of this money can be used to hire more teachers, to support current ones, to hire more school counselors, to even renovate old buildings to make them more uh, safe in terms of COVID-19. As West Virginia's Teacher of the Year, where do you envision some of these dollars really benefiting our 55 counties? Everybody in the room deserves attention. And so spending money on teachers is, I think, I believe a great idea. One to 28, that ratio, if we could get that ratio down, I've always said that, gosh, if we could just have, you know, 12 kids in a class, imagine what we could do. So of course, you know, teachers would be a great idea. Taking a look at, there are so many counties that are applying you know, if we just go back to these SBAT, the school building authority, if we go back to these lists of what do these schools need, they've already done the legwork on what they need for kids. There's significant concern about teacher burnout, specifically this year as a result of the stressors of the pandemic. And in a recent study that was released by Education Week, it found that more than 90 percent of teachers in the United States feel more stressed now than they did before the pandemic started. And as West Virginia's 2021 Teacher of the Year, what might be some advice that you would give to a new teacher in West Virginia who started his or her career this year in the pandemic, and then also a teacher who's been a longtime teacher, you know, both may be feeling stressed and may be questioning whether or not to stay in the profession? So probably to new teachers, I would give them the same advice I give a friend that gets a new haircut. You know, give it some time. It would be really hard to say yay or nay to the teaching profession this year. And so my advice for new teachers is this is such a rewarding career. And the relationships that you can build with kids and families is unlike anything else. We are the career that launches all other careers. And what I would say to seasoned teachers, teachers who've been teaching, you know, five years or better, this summer, do what you love. I happen to love running and guilty pleasure watching Bold and the Beautiful. (laughs) I love sitting by the pool or hanging out with friends, you know, soak up some professional development this summer. You're going to want to hear what the quote experts are saying about, you know, do we remediate or do we accelerate? What are we supposed to do to fill in these gaps? You could hear that all over the place. I was, you know, take some time to soak that in, but not too much because we do need to unplug and take a break. We need some time for some of this to sink in and gel before we have to hit the ground running in August. That was Erin Anderson, West Virginia's 2021 Teacher of the Year, speaking with Liz McCormick. We'd love to hear from you about your experience with school. Whether you're a teacher, a student, or a parent, tell us how you're doing. What's keeping you up at night? And what are you hopeful for? We're at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. And you can also leave us a voicemail at 304-207-0551. Again, that's 304-207-0551. 
The Mountain State is home to a lot of older folks. More than 20% of the state's population is over 65. And we're seeing signs of a crisis in care. While our average age is going up, the number of younger workers is going down. And that's a challenge for senior care facilities and home care companies. In the new episode of Us and Them, host Trey K looks at the care continuum. Here's an excerpt from the episode called Who's Going to Take Care of Mama? Many companies are helping seniors age in place. I saw there was an opportunity to do some things in geriatric care. Eric Hicks is a franchise owner of Right at Home. He started up in 2005. I looked at the demographics and I said, heck, there's going to be a growth in the number of elderly people coming down the pike as we move forward. And I'd like to figure out a way to try to capitalize on that. Eric spent more than a decade in the industry and has tapped into what is now the preferred option for more and more seniors. The government and medical community are behind this model. Eric saw the shift toward in-home care in the mid-1990s as a way to hold down long-term costs. The whole dynamics changed. It was driven basically by insurance companies because they wanted to get people to the lower cost setting so it would cost them less money. And same thing for Medicare and everything else. They want to get people to a lower cost setting. Prior to the 90s, people might stay in a hospital many times for two or three weeks. Well, very seldom do you ever see somebody stay in a hospital for two or three weeks now. What they do is they'll go and have their whatever they need done at acute care center. As soon as they're stabilized and their vitals are okay, they're sent to a lower cost setting. Dozens of home health care agencies in West Virginia serve an expanding base of elderly clients. Since Eric started up his company, it has become one of the largest agencies in the state. It serves clients in eight counties, employs more than 400 caregivers, and 25 administrative staff. Still, Eric says West Virginia's home care industry is in a panic, trying to meet the overwhelming need of an aging population. As the state sees a historic increase in its elderly population, it's losing its younger workers. This is due in part to an ongoing exodus of young people from the state. And the future is not looking too bright either. From 2010 to 2018, there were more deaths than births in West Virginia. Eric calls this an acute situation. We just don't have enough people to provide the care that is needed to allow these people to remain in place and age at home. We don't have enough people, and then some of the people we do, this is not necessarily the profession that they want to get into. Granted, this is not something that, is, that pays a lot of money, but it comes from the heart. And we are looking for people that really have a passion for caring and have a kind, caring attitude and want to help out, uh, help out um, other people in this capacity. And we just don't have enough people in our state to meet the demand for that, and we need to look at bringing in other people. Actually, West Virginia has a history of that. Our mining industry brought people in from Europe, from various countries to come and, and staff the need. You're smiling as I'm saying that, mm -hmm. but do you think that's something that maybe people in the state might have to consider? Well, I, I think it's something we need to do and not just consider. I think we need to make it happen. And I've compared it to, to your analogy just many times is that early in the 1900s, late 1800s, we had many people that came here from um, Eastern Europe to work in our coal mines. They worked in coal camps in southern West Virginia, and then they branched off and did other things. After that, we can do some of that with health care right now where we don't have enough people to provide that care uh, or want to do that work, we can bring in people who would welcome that. Now is the time, is the best time ever for people to actually listen to what I'm saying because people understand that losing population is not a good thing and, that we, and I think people understand that we need to diversify. We've got to change the way we think here, and we've got to open our borders and be more inviting to different people, people of different races, you know, black and brown people, people from other countries. That's what's going to make us grow. That's how we're going to be diverse, and that's also going to make people want to live here because people want diversity overall. And if we can make ourselves more accepting and open to that, I think that in and of itself 
will make people want to relocate or locate here. And now is the time for us to make that happen. We've been listening to an excerpt from the latest Us and Them episode, Who's Going to Take Care of Mama? You can hear the whole episode wherever you get your podcasts or online at wvpublic.org. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation, and the Claude Worthington Benedum Foundation. The story of Appalachia can't be summarized in one book or one article or one movie. Our region goes beyond just hack stereotypes, and I think that's what some people outside our region miss. As we heard today, there's so many stories to be told, and within each story are so many different viewpoints and complexities. But within complexity is beauty, and I think we should be proud of that. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackfurt. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, West Swing, Nathan L., and Dog and Gun. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups, and Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.